My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. Welcome back. We are keeping on with our Civic Imagination Incubator mini-series, looking at the work of different creatives in Appalachia and how they are working to build stronger communities. In the past few episodes, we featured conversations with the project leads, that's Dr. Sangeeta Shrestova and Dr. Henry Jenkins, who are both out at the University of Southern California, as well as Sam Ford, who works in Western Kentucky at their innovation campus. In the past few weeks, we featured interviews with some of the creative folks who are part of the project, including Clint Waters, who's a sci-fi author based in Bowling Green, and Ryan Dearbone, who is an assistant professor at Western Kentucky in broadcast journalism. This week, we're going to switch it up a bit, and we're going to talk to a student. Madison Whittle is the youngest participant in the project, but by no means short of experience. Madison is graduating um, this May, congratulations Madison, at Western Kentucky University. Um, she's been studying user experience, graphic design, and computer in animation. So she really blends her artistic spirit and background with tech in a way that's meant to make actionable change in different organizations. And we'll talk a little bit about that in our conversation today. She has also worked at Western Kentucky's Extended Reality Research Lab and at their student-based advertising agency. So she's had a lot of hands-on experiences, again, working in and around her community. We get into talking about one of her most recent projects, and this is something that she's working on, again, in collaboration with the Civic Imagination Incubator. And that is Muser, which is an app that she has completely developed to look at how people engage with museums. And certainly we talk about how this has, you know, impact beyond the museum field as well. But looking at this integration again of design um, and human behavior in a, in a shared space. So I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you and highlight again, just the great work that people are doing in the community and this interesting blend of art and technology and how we can take traditions and carry them into a present space using technology and resources that we have available. So if you want to learn more about Madison or any of the folks featured on this podcast mini-series, please head over to www.foxfire.org. You can navigate to our podcast page um, and listen and learn there, or you're welcome to download our podcast wherever you get yours from. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Madison. Well, my name is Madison Whittle. Um, I'm a senior at Western City, which is in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, and I'm currently studying graphic design and user experience. And I have a minor in computer animation. I did a project recently with um, the Extended Reality Lab that I'm a part of. And I did a project focusing on like Southern Kentucky, South Central Kentucky, which Soki for short, um, history and culture. But South Central Kentucky is like kind of centered around Warren County, which is where Bowling Green is. And it's like 10 or 11 counties around. And I focused on that, obviously, because I'm from the region, but also like we don't learn a lot about our local history um, and school. And so like Mammoth Cave, you know, 
our involvement in the Civil War, Bowling Green specifically, and even stuff like Lost River Cave, which is, you know, a few minutes down the road, but like, what was it? Like, it was actually like a nightclub in the 1930s. Um, and very few people know that. Like, it's just kind of those fun little things. And so I did an augmented reality project to like, bring that experience and bring that education into schools and like a new media. So it kind of um, stuck out more compared to like a classic lecture or, you know, a video or something like that. And so to answer your question, <laughs> um, I feel like I am in South Central Kentucky because I'm very much like, you know, imagining of Kentucky, very much like if you split it like halfway down the left side. And so in my mind, like Eastern Kentucky towards that region, like I'm past even like Central Kentucky, that is Appalachian to me. But I know like people that aren't from Kentucky consider the entire state Appalachian. So it's very interesting. Um, it's very interesting to see, identify, and depending on what county they're from, because of course in Kentucky, uh, you're identified by your county. You never say cities. It's weird. We always go by counties. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's just strange, but I never personally identified as Appalachian. I definitely was rural Kentuckian for sure. Not Appalachian though. I don't like, I can't recall thinking like, oh, Appalachia, like this is what that community is like. Um, just because, you know, growing up, you don't really think about stuff like that, but especially being in college and talking to people that were from that region. I have some professors that um, are Appalachian, but from West Virginia's side, not Kentucky. And it's really interesting to hear stories of like how they were raised and like growing up and how people treated them. And so I'm learning a little bit every day, but, and you know, like, it's so funny because growing up in Allen County specifically, or like growing up in that culture, I always had like kind of this hatred towards it. Like, I don't know, like I knew, knew there was a bigger world and I knew that some of the ways that people, you know, thought about the world were inaccurate or outdated. And I was like, man, I just really wish people would like step outside themselves for a second and realize like even like I keep talking about Warren County but like to Bowling Green there are so many different people it's like the third largest city in Kentucky like if you take 30 minutes and like go like explore like don't stay here for the rest of your life um I'm still I still you know believe that like I think every once in a while you should step out of your comfort zone to understand like you know different ways of life different cultures but I've come to like really appreciate what I did grow up with um culturally and like you know comfort food like southern food and like traditions and stuff like that I realize now um really special and so I really struggled growing up because I was definitely like the weird art kid <laughs> and in a community like that if you aren't like from there from generations back so if your family hasn't been there for generations there's like this strange like I don't want to say distrust but like you don't ever feel like quite you know like in the culture like some other people do because growing up when I went to school um I'm the oldest 
didn't have like an older sibling to go off of. And obviously my parents um, weren't from there. But everyone that I was around, like their parents were teachers, um, their parents were best friends with their principal, like whatever, growing up. And so I never like had that experience. And I think that caused that like resentment in a way. But, you know, we grew up in like the country and so summer nights and like bonfires and potatoes and getting juice all over you and um, fishing and doing all that stuff like that still you know definitely formed me as a person and like my creativity and thinking about things in different ways and like just playing like real traditional play you know how does what you just said about um interactive like in-person play and your your creative background as a as a child and young adult um how did that lead you to a career in UX I just like it was pretty much me and my sister my younger sister um we didn't have like a neighborhood to go play with kids and like ride bikes and like I, I still wouldn't ride a bike on the road that our, our house is on like it's it's dangerous it's curvy and you know so we didn't get like that sense of like growing up but we got really creative and like finding ways to entertain ourselves <laughs> and so um you know we lived on a farm so we had animals to play with dogs we had goats for a while we had like ducks at one point so playing with them was fun um I think like despite like feeling isolated I guess like not having that childhood neighborhood experience um we made up for it in other ways but specifically in like art and design um I know that I started drawing from a really young age super throw myself into it until like middle school or high school and I would stay up all night and draw pictures and I was one of those people one of those artists that would start on the eye and like get really, really detailed and then their details and then the proportions are off because that's not how you should do that. <laughs> and so like, I would drive myself crazy um, erasing eyes and noses and mouths until I was happy with it. But that's what I did at night. Um, but then during the day and particularly in high school, we had to choose like a vocational um, pathway and so I did programming and I'm not a programmer, like still I'm not, uh, my brain doesn't think mathematically, but I learned a lot of skills that like relate themselves to things like user experience and to a degree art and design, depending on what you're doing. And so that was kind of my first like dip into that realm, I guess. And um, just from there, like I took a web design class, loved it. But then through college, um, I found out we have like a user experience certificate. I joined that and then I realized how much I loved it because it's very like psychological and, um, you know, you can research and it's very much like the type A of creatives, I guess, because you get that creative liberty to be like really crazy in design or like have these really oddball ideas, but the action of like looking at statistics and research. And I like that for some reason. And so combining the two is really special. So I guess piggybacking on that, like on a larger scale, 
you know, as you get ready to launch into your own career, how do you hope to um, connect communities through creativity or through your design work? Looking at it now, like what I'm doing, I guess, past graduation, um, I will most likely fall into a designer position, which I'm happy with, level of design. Um, and I guess my personal like creative philosophy is I try to make things that resonate with people. That's not mind-blowing, but like everything that I, I make specifically like websites but you know I do other forms of design um I try to make it something that people like really get to and you know graphic design by definition is sharing you know information visually and I think it's so much more than that because it's very like feelings based and you know you feel a lot of things when you like something or like really hate something or whatever the situation is. And the same goes for user experience, specifically um, UX design. When you make something that people really like resonate with and really enjoy, they're gonna keep that in their mind, whether they know it or not. But like, you know, video games, you know, that has an element of user experience. Um, certain apps, you know, stuff like that. Um, ideally, if it's done, you know, with UX in mind, it's meant to be like a lasting experience. And so um, I try with everything I do to make a lasting experience, or at least an experience that people enjoy for five minutes. It's just really, it's interesting. Um, it's a very interesting field because it's very much like you have to take yourself out of your own shoes and think about what other people want or resonate with or like or dislike or whatever and so like it's a very like humbling thing but I think you know it requires a level of sympathy and empathy that um we all should try and strive for you know I'm still striving for it too and it's difficult sometimes um to put myself in the shoes of like a 60 year old man like I, I don't know or like a child, like, what did I like when I was a kid? You know, what do you hope to take away from the Civic Imagination Incubator? I feel like, you know, as the only student folk, <laughs> um, I'm in like a really weird part of my life because I'm about to graduate college, you know, working with people that have been in their industry for a lot longer than I have or experience or have like the expertise and so not only like developing my own projects and like getting feedback, because I love like interdisciplinary work. I'm a huge like proponent of interdisciplinarity. And so getting feedback from people in different disciplines is awesome. And I love that. But also seeing like where you guys are and your process and like, you know, what you guys did at my age and like how you got to where you are now. And so it's, I don't know, it's <laughs> I'm scared, I'm excited, but I'm hoping to get from this project, you know, feel better about being scared and excited, maybe. We were all, well, still, I still am as like scared and nervous, you know, about the future as you are, I'm sure. Yeah. And yeah. It's a uncertain, but exciting time. So, yeah. So for this project specifically, I have been developing um, an app 
that assists with like visitor engagement in museums. And so the reason that that, you know, is an important thing is because um, museums, as you know, as they're slowly developing tech, depending on, you know, where you go, which museum you're at, there are some that are way ahead and they're like, oh, we're doing VR um, exhibits, like it's crazy, blah, blah, blah. But then you have some that are really far behind. And so um, when they're dealing with like visitor engagement and, you know, popularity of exhibits or like how long are they spending in front of an artifact like those statistics that are important for museums a lot of the times that research is done literally with like a clipboard like a docent holding a clipboard and writes down like oh this person stood in front of the Mona Lisa for a minute and then they moved on or whatever and so um not only is that a little bit inefficient and um you know strenuous on the person that has to write down this information but there's also a lot of like bias involved with that um if you know that you're being watched you know you're going to behave a different way especially if you know it comes to museums and i'm sure the common perception there is if i look at this for longer i'll look smarter <laughs> and so stuff that you may not be actually interested in like who knows because you know a person is watching you and then um, another technology that's used for like that problem is like specialized security cameras that I guess have artificial intelligence that can tell it like, oh, here's a person moving around the space. Um, they were here for like five seconds or however long and then they move on. But from our research, we found that that's not very efficient and like the quality isn't the best. Um, and, you know, that has hiccups as well. And so my advisor, Kara Williams Glenn, and I, um, we were like, well, you know, this is a problem, or like this is something that is important to museums, the statistics of that. What is the best way to go about like solving that or finding that information in a more like accurate light? And so we developed an app called Muser, M U S E R, that is a digital like wayfinding app. Um, but also benefits museums in that they give or they find those statistics through the app. And so more specifically, <laughs> that was a very general overview. More specifically, um, when we conduct our research, we go into a museum space um, and we hand people like our test phones where you open it, you hit start, you put it in your pocket. And then once you're done, you hit stop. And so um, people hit play or start and they begin to like explore the museum space and the actual like interface of the app is a map of the space. And so it's like a GPS, but indoors. Um, so you can see yourself actually on the map while you're walking around. So if you're like, oh, I go to the, the impressionist art exhibit, I'm like, you know, two rooms away, you know? And so it's kind of like a souped up digital map um, through our research, also side note, digital like wayfinding, I guess in museums is very poor because usually it's just a picture of the map. So why not just have the actual map at that point? And so um, by having that GPS component, your sense of where you are. And so you go throughout the space, that's like your wayfinding tool. And then once you get to the very end, you hit stop and you hand it back to us. And then um, 
before the user takes the phone or the participant, um, we brief them like, you know, this is what it's going to do. This is what, you know, blah, 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 blah. Once they get back, we have another briefing session or debriefing. And we're like, you know, the, the data collected by moving through the exhibit, we will use to create a heat map. And the importance of the heat map is that you can see the floor plan of a museum and say like, oh, like the Picasso exhibit was really, really hot. Like, you know, this person was there for X amount of time. It's really hot. And then this exhibit over here, they barely walked through. So this one's really, really cold. And so you get like a literal map of um, the hot and the cold spot app that they see in the phone interface. And so um, with that information, we can take it back to the museum and say like, you know, here is literal evidence of, um, you know, what is popular, what isn't. And um, GPS, I forgot, I don't think I mentioned this. GPS doesn't work well indoors um, just because it's dependent on satellites. And so um, there's some stuff we have to do like on the back end to make that work, like literally putting in manual key points um, throughout the museum space. But then once those key points have been put into the app, it functions basically like a GPS, but it maintains like the duration of your visit and like, you know, where'd you stay for the longest and all of that stuff. And so they give the phones back to us and we generate a heat map. Um, everything is confidential. We don't keep their names. We don't keep their, you know, they're not using their actual phone. The only location data that, you know, we're using is from a phone that isn't theirs. And it's, it's, um, I guess, defined by a random string of numbers. And so the people involved have very little like risk associated. Um, their privacy is not at all, you know, I guess, explore, like, taken advantage of or, and then with the heat map, my advisor and I go back through the museum space and with our knowledge of like graphic design, a little bit of ad, and user experience, we can kind of deduct like, why was this spot really popular? Why wasn't it? And sometimes it is dependent on like the artwork. Sometimes it's like, well, yeah, it's gonna be popular, duh, <laughs> you know? But sometimes it's literally based off like environmental cues, it's crazy. And so we did research initially on a study abroad trip in London, and we went to the V&A, which is an enormous museum, and the Tate Britain, which is a significantly smaller museum, but both are very, you know, famous. And so the VNA was really interesting because, like I said, it's huge, set up really weird. Um, they have like five stories, but you have to go to a certain area to get to another section of the floor. Like it's not all connected, and so that called, you know, that makes it a very confusing museum to like navigate through. Um, and when we did our initial test with like students that, you know, came with us, a lot of the times when we figured out like, why was something hot? Why was something cold? It was because like textual things. So maybe there was a bench there and they got tired and they sat down for a little bit because it's a huge museum. And it was also really, really hot. <laughs> um, when we did our research there, it was like when it was the hottest day ever in London's history. 
and there's no AC <laughs> and there's very little like water sources unless you bring your own and so like yeah like sometimes also speaking of that some of the rooms weren't even ever like into because of the heat like either the exhibit was closed because it was so hot or the actual room there's like a glass um exhibit and all the mirrors reflecting the the light in on each other it was so hot like significantly hotter than the rest of the museum and i know that's kind of just like a you know maybe a vna problem more so than um an american museum problem but like you'd be surprised how little things like that it's like when we decide to you know how we decide to navigate through a space like that i saw some research um, I keep saying like digital wayfinding. Someone calls it play finding because you're not necessarily going from point A to point B. You're like enjoying your your roaming there. And so like I really like the term play finding because it is play finding. Like you're looking at what you're interested in and you're kind of meandering. Um, but it's it's just you would be shocked <laughs> how little things like that, even like it boils down to bad signage or like bad print wayfinding or like whatever if it's not efficient or difficult to read or confusing they're probably you know not gonna go to the really cool exhibit that you put a lot of money into if you know no one knows about it if it's down a dark hallway which actually did happen <laughs> in the vna taking those contextual like cues and writing down our little notebooks and being like, oh, well, there's a there's a bathroom here, or there's a bench here, or, you know, the signage here is awful. Then we can go back to the museum and say, hey, like, we kind of think that the signage here is really bad, or like not, you know, descriptive enough. So we think that if you have a bench or like have more descriptive instructions or like whatever, more people would go through this. But yeah, it's like really, really cool research. And it makes you, it's like a like a riddle or like a mind puzzle. And it's like really fun if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. By making these changes, obviously, um, you make a better museum experience. All in turn, like it is a civic project. It's just like a billion steps, but and there's like surveys involved. And so um, it is a civic based initiative, but there's just a lot of stuff going on. And I hope I explained it well enough. Um, it was a little confusing, oh, yeah. but yeah, no, you explained it really well. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> I think cool. it can make some good impacts about how we think, you know, how, how we as professionals, you know, speaking from the museum side, how we think mm -hmm. about where we place things, you know, and who sees it and yeah. who yeah. it and how can we use that to to elevate more important stories that, that need more eyes on them? Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We are going to continue with this mini series. We've got just two more interviews coming at you and those will be released in the next few weeks. If you haven't already, head over to our website, www.foxfire.org. On our podcast page, we have images, a little bit of extra information, and plenty of resources and links for you to learn more about each of the folks and the Civic Imagination Project. And as always, we want to hear from you. Are you a creative in Appalachia? What are you doing? How are you connecting with your communities? Reach out to us on social media. That's Facebook and Instagram at Foxfire.org. And this podcast is brought to you free as a service of our mission. If you're interested in supporting this project, 
or more of Foxfire's work, please consider donating or purchasing a book or merchandise or even just sharing a podcast or a book with a friend. All of those things help bring new listeners to us and help continue our work preserving and promoting Southern Appalachian history and culture. Make sure to tune in next time for the final two interviews in this mini-series. Take care, and we'll talk to you all next time. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>